Hi, I'm Jane Mudgett, and welcome to the Mental Health Download. Today, I'm here with Dr. Shandini Sharma, who's a geriatrician here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I'm glad to have you here today, Dr. Sharma. Glad to be here. Thank you for this opportunity. Dr. Sharma has taught me so much over the years when it comes to brain, not only the anatomy of our brains, how they work, and sometimes don't work as well as they could. And today we're going to talk about our own brain health and dementia. There's two facets of it that we're going to address. And one facet is, can we do some things ourselves to prevent dementia and if someone has been diagnosed with dementia, whether it's ourselves and others, what then? So let's start with preventing dementia first. And so I think this is a big fear of people. Do you find that people are very afraid of dementia? Yeah, actually, ever since the baby boomers started hitting the age of 65 and what has been now termed as the silver tsunami, Yeah. When that came ashore, the number of people turning 65 ever since 2011, I believe, every day is about 10,000, which is a large number. So an aging population then put us at risk of, as a population, at risk for dementia. Why is that? Because the greatest risk factor for dementia is Age. Age doesn't mean like, oh my God, the moment you are 65, that, oh my, we should now be worried about dementia. But as more and more people got into their later 80s and 90s and even hundreds, the risk of dementia algorithmically increased. And once that happened, and associations and organizations like Alzheimer's Association and Alzheimer's uh, Ooh, there's another organization uh, for Alzheimer's in the UK. They got active and they spread the word in the world that there is this diagnosis mm -hmm. of Alzheimer's disease. And then dementia diagnosis became, came into the awareness of everybody. Right. Once that came into the awareness of everybody, and the devastating nature of the disease itself came into the awareness of people is when I would say that the, the, fact, the fear factor also uh, came into the awareness because yeah. people have had dementia for eons right. ever since we've lived, but it was not that well documented, diagnosed and studied. As a matter of fact, the Alzheimer's disease itself was first diagnosed officially in 1903. And then it was lost for an entire century. Wow. And then it was resurrected because of the greater prevalence right. or incidence. And so, yes, there is a fear. And as you and I were talking earlier, when you said that is cancer or more is more a fearful diagnosis for anybody to hear or dementia. In my world, as we shared earlier, yeah. it is dementia because as we shared earlier, there are cancer survivors, right? but there is no one who survives dementia and there's only one way to go. And that is slowly dwindle down in your 
cognitive and physical abilities once you have this very debilitating diagnosis mm -hmm. of dementia. Well, and one of the things that I've learned from you before is we're using the word dementia specifically and thoughtfully because I understand there are 12 or 13 different kinds of dementia. Is right. that correct? Right. Now, one of those is Alzheimer's. Right. And is Alzheimer's the most prevalent or do we just use that word as a blanket term? It is. It is the most common type. It accounts for almost two thirds of all the dementia types. So, and so the biggest bulk of dementia mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is because of Alzheimer's disease mm -hmm. and about mm, 20 to 30% add up to all the other different types. So that could be a vascular-based dementia, that can be early onset dementia. Are there other sort of common ones that come up? If I might be- Of that other, of that 30%. Yes. yes. So the others could be the vascular, as you said, the Parkinson's-related dementia, frontotemporal dementia, Lewy body dementia, mm. the no normal pressure hydrocephalus-related dementia, some people even categorize the alcohol-related dementia in here. Some don't. And Pick's disease, which is an old diagnosis. So those are all some of the, the diagnoses. If I might clarify, yeah. when we say early onset dementia, most often that's not a type. Okay. It's the stage at which a disease is diagnosed. Most often it is Alzheimer's, but that happened early onset at uh, a younger age. Okay. Because Alzheimer's is a disease of the aging. And that right. is, that's why it's into two categories. And that is early onset or late onset. Late onset is usually, not late onset is after the age of 65. Usually it is 70 and 75 and above. Okay. But early onset is when the diagnosis, diagnosis, not the beginning of the symptoms, but the diagnosis is made before the age of 65. Okay. All right. That is a good clarification. So mm -hmm. just going back mm -hmm. there, when we use the term dementia, that is an umbrella term to mean the, all of the different kinds of dementia, one of which is Alzheimer's, which mm -hmm. is the most prevalent. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things we want to talk about is when we have this anxiety of fear is what can we can control? We can't mm -hmm. control our genetics, which is a small part of this mm -hmm. and the whole scheme of things, but we can control other things. And you made a point of saying there are three distinct items that we as individuals can do to have a positive impact on preventing dementia. What are those three items? So first of all, it's a very new concept that we all learned through research that can you prevent dementia? Okay. So yes, thank goodness that we can do something to not only delay, but even prevent it. So in the last couple of decades is when we've learned that the risk modification, as you said, can't change age, cannot change gender. And if there is a bad gene, can't change that. Right. So what can we? That is what we eat. I'm starting, I'm not necessarily saying it in priority of importance, but how, what we eat. Okay. So nutrition, exercise. Exercise has been hugely related to 
prevention. Mm -hmm. And then exercise, as we say, physical exercise. Then change it also to brain exercise. Okay. Brain games. And those are the three tenets or the domains in which you can really make an impact towards preventing dementia. It'll be nice to mention here that when you are age 70, and if at that time you're trying to make an impact on preventing dementia, it may be a little too late. <laughs> okay. But well, because then the risks are increasing at that age. They are increasing and they might already be present inside your yeah. body. The yeah. disease might also be already present, mm -hmm. maybe not manifesting, but it might already be there. Right. Those, so to say, the dam has broken inside, but the flooding just hasn't occurred. That's okay. All. Okay. And so the so when do you want to do this? Well, anybody could say, well, the day you're born. Well, no, not really. We are still growing until the age of thirty, maybe even forty. They keep changing whenever our our cognitive maturity has occurred. Right. They used to say 15, then they said 20, and then they say 30. I don't know what is what is that, but somewhere... And, and you're a brain expert. And I'm a brain expert. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they, but, but there are more experts than me too. Okay. <laughs> so they change okay. it and, okay. I, and I translate it. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> I'm more of a translator of brain experts. Yeah. <laughs> so, the, so somewhere between 30 and 50, because we have come off of our growing yeah. and we haven't yet hit the down, down slide by about 50. As they said, no, 30 is the new 50 or 50 is the new 30, whichever way. So right around the 50s is when if you wanted to prevent dementia in your later years is when you want to make the changes on the three domains of exercise, which is physical exercise, the, the brain exercise, which is brain games, etc., and let's call it nutritional exercise. Okay. Food exercise. So there's those three domains that you can start working on. So exercising your fork to have more nutrition per bite. Oh, beautifully said. <laughs> yeah, beautifully said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're still moving our fork, yeah. but we're getting more nutrition per bite. Now, it seems like a couple of years ago, I was seeing all the ads everywhere in the computer, wherever I was online about luminosity and other brain games and... You know, everything I read is that the it's it is a help. It is interesting and it is stimulating for some, but it's not a cure all. When you say brain exercises beyond those brain games, what else do you mean by that? Well, as we can say, it's it's for free, and it is the best socialization. Okay, that is the best brain exercise that we can do. Why is that? Because it's not, you don't even need a computer for that. You just need a friend or you need a neighbor and you need a circle of uh, acquaintances or any group that you go to. Why is socialization not only the biggest hype? It is a big hype because people are recognizing the benefits of it. Mm -hmm. The opposite of socialization is isolation. It's been declared to be a disease. Okay. So obviously, because it's not only just like, oh, it's not appealing, but it's already a disease. There's a certain pathology that has been identified with it. So coming back to socialization, 
Why is socialization so helpful? Because like we described, there are these, when we look at the anatomy of the brain, the brain is divided into different lobes, not just to, to make it- Not when just the been, left brain and the right brain, not but the frontal lobe and- Yeah, okay. the different lobes. Uh-huh. And when you see any picture of the brain, it's not just to give a different color to it, but this is yellow, this is green, this is red, this is blue. But each lobe has a certain functional dominance. Right. Like the frontal is doing all the thinking, the abstraction, the learning, the memory, the new stuff. It's called the neocortex. It's the new brain, Mm -hmm. which we, as we evolved, we got more of. The temporal is all like the acoustics. It's not just listening, but when you listen and then memories are made even just by listening Mm -hmm. and even by listening to a single first strung of a guitar, you know what the song is, where Mm -hmm. you were when you heard it, the images that came through and everything comes streaming down, right? Mm -hmm. All of that is done by the temporal lobe. The uh, occipital, it's like not just the fact that the eyes are connected to the occipital, everything visual. Like right now, you mm-hmm. and I are sitting in this room. Mm-hmm. We are aware of this three-dimensional space around us and right. this little computer in front of us. But everything visual, when we are driving, imagine when we are driving, we don't have an instrument connected to us to tell us what's the speed of the car coming towards us, but we already know. We know. How right. do we know that? Right. That's all because of the brilliance of the occipital lobe. So coming back to each lobe has a certain function. But socialization demands that there is interaction of all those functions, all those lobes in one simple single activity. Like when you and I were sitting and talking earlier, we were just, we traversed the world, came back, went back again and came back. All of that happened right there just by that socialization. Here's another thought. I listened to this lovely TED talk Mm -hmm. long ago. And it just stuck to my head. The brain is nothing else but a blob of tissue sitting in this dark skull. Mm -hmm. When you think of it, that's what it is. That's all it is. The brain itself is not seeing anything. It's the eyes seeing for the brain. Mm -hmm. The brain itself is not smelling anything. It's the nose that's smelling for the brain. It's not hearing anything, it's the ear. The brain itself, who knows, there's great debate. Where does the feeling, when we say we feel this, where's that feeling? Where does that lie? We don't know. Mm -hmm. We can conjecture. Researchers can tell us a little more about it, that when you feel something, which part of the brain lights up, Mm -hmm. but have we actually, so, So when you think of it that way, it kind of gave me an analogy of a human body as like an octopus. There's this little brain, which is enveloped in a dark box. Mm -hmm. And all these tentacles of sensory uh, organs Mm -hmm. are making it know where it is, what's going on, what's the story of this brain, what we call as life. Mm -hmm. That organ is material, Mm-hmm. That's the brain. Mm-hmm. But when we talk about brain health, I also talk about 
mind health right because and then mind health also divides into two parts mental health and cognitive health because cognition is way beyond mental health as well right because you could have a mental disease but you can function and drive all your life right but if you have a cognitive disease you wouldn't be able to drive after a while because there'll be degeneration right and right. you know what that's that image of the brain changed my own concept about everything about the brain and the cognitive health of the brain. Mm -hmm. So hold that thought for a minute. Mm -hmm. I just want to take a step back and go back to that octopus analogy, because mm -hmm. I can really visualize that mm -hmm. and think about socialization. Mm -hmm. And so what I like thinking about at uh, the analogy is these functional MRIs. So they're called fMRIs. And that's what you alluded to in taking pictures in different parts of the brain light up. So I think what you're alluding to is that if I'm in a social setting and socializing with my friend, Dr. Shandini Sharma, or someone else, and I, had, I was in an FR, fMRI machine, you would see lots of different parts of my brain and lots of different lo lobes of my brain light up. So that is the aspect of mental, excuse me, that's the aspect of brain health you're referring to as far as brain activity. So I might not be moving right. appendages on my body, right. but I'm using lots of different neural networks that are lighting up. And, and so therefore they're getting exercise. Okay, now let's go back then to what you were saying of the brain. Mm is brain health is both mental health. So when we think about our own mental health, our own capacity to deal with stress and anxiety and depression, I put that in a mental health category. And a cognitive health is the second part of brain, which is in the mind category, is mm -hmm. how well is my mind working in and learning new things mm -hmm. and solving problems mm -hmm. and abstraction. Um, okay. Visual okay. spatial. Did I recap that correctly? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So why does our healthcare system separate body health from our brain health? <laughs> brain. Sorry. Because little brain. segue there, but we'll go there just brain. for a minute. And I guess I can I can relate to that question at another level is because I do come from back east mm -hmm. and mind and body was always the same. Yeah. It was never like, oh, yeah, you can exercise the body and that's all it is. You're not just treating the body. You're always treating mind and body. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I guess the allopathic medical system, well, I guess because that I can answer because medical system, the Western medicine has right. always focused on disease processes right right it has always focused on when something is broken then you want to go fix it right right and, and here we're trying to talk about how not to have something break mm -hmm. so in addition to going back to brain health where we're thinking about mental health and our cognitive health within our brain how can we have an impact and the impact is in physical exercise brain exercise and getting more nutrition per forkful. So our, <laughs> what we're eating 
has an impact. Mm -hmm. And many of us know through our own skills and experience, healthier foods from less healthier foods. We're not going to go into all of that detail, but we're sort of back to fruits and vegetables and whole grains and lean proteins, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And you can use whatever category you want to make that happen. Okay. Now let's say we cross the line and I want to use the story you mentioned to me. And that is I'm thinking about prevention or you hear questions about prevention much more often from the children whose parents have been diagnosed with dementia. Mm, mm. Then all of a sudden that part lights up and says, oh my gosh, we do need to talk about my mom and dad, which we'll get to in just a second, or some other family member or a friend, but how do I prevent this from happening to me? So mm -hmm. that's what we've touched on. But now we're going to, we have a family member or a friend that's been diagnosed and we are involved with our caregiving. To me, the first thing that happens is shock. Mm. Could mm. you describe a little of that or mm. what the early stages are when we have, mm. when mm. somebody we love has this diagnosis? So when we teach medical students and residents on how to declare a diagnosis of dementia, we treat it just exactly as how you would share the diagnosis of cancer with a family or when you're declaring that diagnosis because it is, in my world, as we shared, it is as devastating, if not more. Mm -hmm. And so you want to take your time. You want to take, you want to give them all the time they need to absorb this information. So sit them down, be available to them. They will go through those stages of grief, initial shock, then give them that little silence just to absorb that piece of those words just a little silence, let them absorb it. And then give them time to react. Many of them, many people, well, there are two simultaneous reactions. Often, just like in cancer, the patient knows. Mm, and yeah. they are like, yeah, I kind of knew that. And at that time, the family might be like, no, no, it's okay. You don't have the disease or the reverse because we are dealing with dementia, mm -hmm. which is an unusual disease because might have wiped out the insight. Mm -hmm. So patient says, no, you're wrong. I don't have the disease. Okay. <laughs> and the family in the background is nodding and saying, yep, we've known this all along. Ah, okay. So then you're duly acknowledging both reactions. So one of the things you found in your experience as a geriatrician is that after you give a diagnosis, there's often one party in shock and one party in denial. <laughs> describe that Describe that to me in a little more detail. And when I say party, I'm thinking the patient and their family. Right. Okay. So tell me about that. And so, when, so let's start by saying that when there is a diagnosis of dementia, you would rarely give it to one person. So when there's a diagnosis of dementia, you usually have a, what we call as dyad, which means the patient and a caregiver, whether that's a family member, that's a spouse, that's a child, somebody. Mm -hmm. Because after all, you're dealing with the diagnosis of dementia. 
you may give the diagnosis of dementia to the patient and the patient may not remember. So what good is it? Right. So the, yeah. And so, and the other thing that we wanted to preface was that declaring a diagnosis of dementia in our world is probably more poignant than cancer. Yeah. Yeah. But so when you, when you share the diagnosis, often the patient is in denial and the family is nodding their head saying, yes, 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 yes. Now the patient sometimes is in denial because they've lost the insight. That's common. The file of insight has been damaged by the dementia uh, early. Mm-hmm. And so they are happily forgetful and are not aware that they are forgetful. Right. That happens. But sometimes they, have, they are in denial not because of the disease, but just because they are fearful of the disease. And either ways, on a rare, on a less common is that the family is in denial, saying, nope, they don't have dementia. Often we have seen that it's the children and not the spouse. Children are often the ones who are in denial when it is the family who's denying, but not the spouse as often. But so the dynamics can get really complicated, though. I mean, I can see that. And having dealt with other mental health issues and physical health issues, the more, the more folks involved, the more complicated it can be because each person has their own individual relationships. There may be folks in town. There may be folks out of town. Maybe they've observed the behavior. Maybe they haven't. So there is this combination of shock and denial with different different people in the family mm. or again caregivers or friends because again those dynamics aren't aren't the same each for each of your patients and then the stages of grief now what how i learned the stages of grief initially was through dr kubler ross is that what you're referring to mm-hmm. oh mm-hmm. okay so do do patients and family members and caregivers go through those? They do. Okay. They do. And they would, I mean, maybe they wouldn't go through that entire sequence right. in the office right. that very day. Right. But over a period of time, you see them go through that. There's like, why me is, is, is always a question right? with any of the major diagnoses. Mm-hmm. I mean, kidney failure, for instance, is something that people live with on for years mm-hmm. and they know about the kidney failure and they're they completely they walk that walk for decades but when they hit the dialysis level suddenly it comes to why me mm-hmm. i mean so the why me will never cease from the questioning banks of the human mind right but so then yeah then all that bargaining and all and finally culminating in acceptance and when acceptance happens, often it's not the patient with dementia who has the acceptance because they've lost the ability to. It's the caregiver who now accepts right. the diagnosis. And that's when other, other steps or other windows of opportunity open for the caregiver as well as for the loved one, for mm. the patient. So it's not uncommon to 
have denial and to have anger and sort of bargain with with one's faith and with with one's position too for true, that matter true, true it seems like acceptance that point of acceptance can be a real gift because at that point you realize that i'm just speaking for myself and mm-hmm. thinking out loud is that you realize that you can't have an impact on the disease in in a positive way or really a negative way either mm-hmm. it is what it is and True. we have beautifully to- said it is what it is and i may not like it but that's the way it is mm-hmm. and the tough part as many of us have difficulty with change this is a lesson in change like none other i've ever observed True. and that is that loved one that alzheimer's dementia patient may change every day or it's probably more subtle it may change over years up to and including you know 10 11 12 years mm-hmm. after the initial diagnosis average life expectancy or average length of uh, life that a human being has after the diagnosis of alzheimer's is 8 years and the range as you said is 2 maybe because they were diagnosed way too late 2 years to 20 years okay and 20 years living with someone who is just slowly declining in their cognitive function and hence physical function is a task or a condition that you that is very hard in to say the least i just can't imagine it's a marathon i wouldn't wish on anyone yeah i just have to say from yeah. from my heart perspective i mm-hmm. wouldn't wish that so Now that we've come uh, and looked at both sides of preventing Alzheimer's, as well as what happens when somebody in our circle of trust, including family and friends have been diagnosed, how do you, how do you help them through that journey that may be many years in the making when the brain functionality is declining over time. Mm-hmm. As a geriatrician, how do you help the patient and the family with that journey? So let's go by the timeline of the next eight years. Okay. So first, in the kindest and the most professional way, the decla- we declared the diagnosis that there is dementia, whatever test we needed to do in order to make sure of that. And then, as we stated earlier, the cognitive function is only going to decline. And so a huge portion of what's going to happen next in this next one decade is focused on how to educate the caregiver. Because when the caregiver is aware of what the patient with dementia is not aware of anymore, secondary to the cognitive decline, then the caregiver can fill in for that cognitive gap. If we use the phrase retrogenesis, which is when we say when the carpet rolls back and the memory rolls back. Mm -hmm. So retrogenesis, and that is if you go back to how a child is developing the cognitive skills, Mm -hmm and you are anticipating that right now the kid is 
just static. They're not rolling. They're not crawling. So you mm-hmm. know this kid is not going to fall because right. they're just in one place. They right. can't fall. So, but the moment they start crawling, I mean, your mind goes into like, now you have to child-proof the, you have to child-proof the, the home. So similarly with the senior, when you recognize that this person is unable to be alone at home, you have to make those safety provisions because you know now that this person is going to be unsafe to be by themselves at home. Now that's at a much advanced stage going back into milder stages. When the senior is diagnosed, he he or she was probably driving. And at a certain stage, the family along with the providers has to figure out when is it unsafe for the senior to drive anymore, Mm -hmm. in which case somebody else then has to take over that Right. Transport function because the senior with mild, most likely moderate dementia by then is interested in moving from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. They most often don't care how they get there. If they get there by themselves, that's their preference. But if not them, their spouse, if not them, their children, if not them, there are some seniors who have been adapted, adapted enough with family support to Uber it from one place to another. As long as this daughter sitting in Seattle could get the Uber in Tulsa and move them from place A to place B. Right. Right. So, but again, so lots of options can exist, but so whatever is the deficit in the cognitive function and hence physical function of the senior, the family or the loved one or the, if the senior is now in a in a nursing home, then the nursing home that they start filling in the cognitive gap. That, therefore, you can complete the whole of whatever's needed by filling mm-hmm. in that cognitive gap. But, and what it makes me think about is if I'm the caregiver, I'm going to need so much support during the process. And I know one of the things that I've helped clients with when they had a family member that was diagnosed is I got a a great support package from the Alzheimer's Association, which I gave to them as a start so that they could start reaching out to them to find out what resources were available for them and the family. Now, is that common or do I generally develop a relationship with the geriatrician and the geriatrician staff when I have questions. Is it common to take lots of questions from family members in this support process when you have an Alzheimer's patient? Yes. And at the same time, the as you said, the support package or the support from Alzheimer's Association or the support from the, there are now other organizations like the Deeper Snow and all, they have such a plethora of information that is available to the family members. At the same time, there is a certain validation that is irreplaceable until it comes from the providers, the validation coming from the doctors and or the hospital or the specialist, the neurologist or the psychiatrist 
So, and nursing as well is huge because a lot of patient education comes from nursing. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that we always recommend to family members when there is a diagnosis of dementia is that you would need respite because that respite is the time when someone else can take care of a dementia patient and you not only get a break from the from the caregiving but you go and educate yourself right because that education of how those tips of how to provide care and guidance and redirection and other strategies on how to lead a person who is unable to now perform on their own independently that one hour spent will save 10 hours later, a stitch in time. Literally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. so and like one example that I can relate mm-hmm. to is things like pillow science and feeding others. Right. Yeah. I mean, right. it sounds very silly, right. but right. there are some things that you can learn lifting right. that I describe myself as a trained love giver for mm-hmm. my family. I am not a trained caregiver. And so there's a part of me that wants to pay a caregiver, a professional healthcare worker, but there are some things that I need to learn as well. And I remember in a prior uh, Zero symposium with the Mental Health Association in prior years, where they had specific classes on caregiver self-care. Mm-hmm. So a part of that was respite. Mm-hmm. So they had days off mm-hmm. for their own mental health and mm-hmm. their own cognitive health right. there too, right? and right. physical right. health, and maybe just to catch up on sleep, among yeah. other things. Yeah. So I think that's really, really a valid point. But the other thing that I want to go back to that you said, you use this analogy of sort of a rolled up carpet. Mm-hmm. And what that is making me think of is as we're young, when we have newborns and toddlers and young, young little human beings, we're unrolling that carpet over time as their skills continue to increase and their thinking continues to increase over time. And the, the sad part and the heavy and difficult part is at the end of one's life when somebody has been diagnosed with with Alzheimer's that happens in in reverse, Mm -hmm. that we have the rolling up again. Mm -hmm. And and it's really difficult because we haven't seen that in reverse, the loss of the, the knowledge, the skills, the abilities over time. And it, we had these wake up calls that mom can no longer tie her shoes. So she Mm -hmm. needs Velcro shoes and dad forgot how to use Velcro. So we need shoes that he can just slip in his feet into. Mm -hmm. And each of those are, are, are big benchmarks Mm -hmm. as we unlearn things Mm -hmm. over time. Mm -hmm. So this, I can see my, my point is I can Mm -hmm. see how we would need lots of support and understanding that process. And as we said, it's a 10 year long journey. Yep. On an average, if you're going to take it as 10 year long journey, you need respite every so often in order to live through those 10 years. You need uh, that timeline, literally, as I share with the residents and the medical students with me, that timeline is so important because the it will go, that 10 years will go through all the stages. If you have diagnosed dementia in the mild stages, it will progress over the next some years to moderate stages. Right. 
and what are expected deficits that happen during moderate stages will show up. Right. So there's no magic. There's no mystery there. They will show up. Right. And then, of course, it, it will go into the severe stage. And as now we know, it will go into the terminal stage too, stage as well, rather. So when the, these four stages are growing from one to another to the next and the last, the more the caregiver is aware, mm -hmm. as hard as it is to live through that reality, but they, caregiver, knowing that next thing, say for instance, in the mild stages, they're still able to lock the door and stay inside. Right. But the next stage in the mid stage, moderate stage, they will open the door and be curious to see what's outside the door. Right. And well, and then open the neighbor's door and want to see what's inside the neighbor's home. And that's how people have been lost. And so wandering is going to come in the next stage. Often what happens is that when we, you and I talk about dementia or someone else who, you, you know so much about dementia, but someone who doesn't know about dementia, when you talk dementia, the image of the person with dementia in their mind is deaf, mute, laying in the bed, incontinent or bowel and bladder. Mm -hmm. And so looking at that image in their mind, they say, but my loved one is walking, they're continent, they're talking, so they don't have dementia. Right, right. And that's when it really comes to baby steps and this long term. And we want, we want immediate results. We want immediate answers. That's what we're accustomed to. And dementia just does not work on that time frame. Mm. And it's very small incremental steps or incremental losses mm -hmm. over a long period of time. So let's wrap up with, with the two reminders. One is if there has been a diagnosis, there's lots of dynamics. And the, the key is that those change. And we have to accept that up front. And in addition to that, there are support services available from the Mental Health Association for counseling, uh, for example, and from Alzheimer's Association for resources to help not only get a grasp on what that patient may be experiencing with their cognitive health, mental health, and physical health, but the help for the caregivers. Anything yes. you'd add to that? Yes, and Life Senior Services is also yes, another huge. Mm -hmm. And actually in Tulsa, we are blessed to even have that 211. Yes, yeah. absolutely. I mean, we all know 911, right. but for seniors, we all should know 211. Well, and mm -hmm. for really so many social services mm -hmm. in our, our city of Tulsa, Oklahoma, 211 is a fantastic resource. Mm -hmm. So let's go to the other side of the coin is if we're not at that stage now and we're in this 30 to 50 year range, maybe we can influence our own health and well-being long term and, and our own longevity. Mm -hmm. And the three steps to that really goes to the physical exercise, brain exercise, keeping your brain active and curious and thinking and socializing. And then the third element is making sure that your diet is one that is a healthful diet on a day-to-day -day basis. And those are the things that we can control. Well, my favorite geriatrician, my future geriatrician. 
<laughs> is Dr. Shandini Sharma. So thank you so much for talking to us today on the Mental Health Download and talking about brain health and dementia. Thanks so much. Thank you for the opportunity.